0: chapter 10 of the alaskan this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org reading by lars ronander the alaskan by james oliver curwood chapter 10 the wind had died away but the rain continued, torrential in its downpour, and the mountains grumbled with dying thunder. The town was blotted out, and fifty feet ahead of the hissing nose of the launch Alan could see only a gray wall. Water ran in streams from his rubber slicker, and Olaf's great beard was dripping like a wet rag. He was like a huge gargoyle at the wheel, and, in the face of impenetrable gloom, he opened speed until the Norden was shooting with the swiftness of a torpedo through the sea. In Olaf's cabin Alan had listened to the folly of expecting to find Mary Standish. Between Iak River and Catala was a mainland of battered reefs and rocks, and an archipelago of islands in which a pirate fleet might have found a hundred hiding-places. In his experience of twenty years, Erikson had never known of the finding of a body washed ashore, and he stated firmly his belief that the girl was at the bottom of the sea. But the impulse to go on grew no less in Alland. It quickened with the straining eagerness of the Norden as the slim craft leaped through the water. Even the drone of thunder and the beat of rain urged him on. To him there was nothing absurd in the quest he was about to make. It was the least he could do, and the only honest thing he could do, he kept telling himself, and there was a chance that he would find her. All through his life had run that element of chance. Usually it was against odds he had won, and there rode with him in the grey dawn a conviction he was going to win now that he would find Mary Standish somewhere in the sea, or along the coast between Eak River and the first of the islands against which the shoreward current drifted, and when he found her. He had not gone beyond that, but it pressed upon him now, and in moments it overcame him, and he saw her in a way which he was fighting to keep out of his mind. Death had given a vivid clearness to his mental picture of her, A strip of white beach persisted in his mind, and waiting for him on this beach was the slim body of the girl. Her pale face turned up to the morning sun, her long hair streaming over the sand. It was a vision that choked him, and he struggled to keep away from it. If he found her like that, he knew at last what he would do. It was the final crumbling away of something inside him, THE BREAKING DOWN OF THAT OTHER ALAN Holt, WHOSE NEGATIVE LAWS OF SELF-IMPOSED BLINDNESS HAD SENT MARY STANDISH TO HER DEATH. TRUTH SEEMED TO MOCK AT HIM, FLAYING HIM FOR THAT INVULNERABLE POISE IN WHICH HE HAD TAKEN SUCH AN EGOISTICAL PRIDE, FOR SHE HAD COME TO HIM IN HER HOUR OF TROUBLE, AND THERE WERE FIVE HUNDRED OTHERS ABOARD THE NOME. SHE HAD BELIEVED IN HIM, HAD GIVEN HIM HER FRIENDSHIP, and her confidence, and at the last had placed her life in his hands. And, when he had failed her, she had not gone to another. She had kept her word, proving to him she was not a liar and a fraud, and he knew at last the courage of womanhood, and the truth of her words. "'You will understand to-morrow.' He kept the fight within himself, Olaf did not see it as the dawn lightened swiftly into the beginning of day. There was no chance in the tense lines of his face and the grim resolution in his eyes. And Olaf did not press his folly upon him, but kept the northern pointed seaward, adding still greater speed as the huge shadow of the headland loomed up in the direction of Hinchinbrook Island. With increasing day the rain subsided. It fell in a drizzle for a time and then stopped. Alan threw off his slicker and wiped the water from his eyes and hair. White mists began to rise, and through them shot faint rose gleams of light. Olaf grunted approbation as he wrung water from his beard. The sun was breaking through over the mountain tops and straight above, as the mist dissolved, was radiant blue sky. The miracle of change came swiftly in the next half-hour. Storm had washed the air until it was like tonic, a salty perfume rose from the sea, and Olaf stood up and stretched himself, and shook the wet from his body as he drank the sweetness into his lungs. Shoreward Alan saw the mountains taking form, and one after another they rose up like living things, their crests catching the fire of the sun. Dark inundations of forests took up the shimmering gleam, green slopes rolled out from behind veils of smoking vapor, and suddenly, in a final triumph of the sun, the Alaskan coast lay before him in all its glory. The Swede made a gesture Of exultation with his free arm, Grinning at his companion, Pride and the joy of living In his bearded face. But in Alan's there was no change. Dully he sensed the wonder of the day, And of sunlight breaking Over the mighty ranges to the sea. But something was missing. The soul of it was gone, And the old thrill was dead. He felt the tragedy of it, and his lips tightened even as he met the other's smile, for he no longer made an effort to blind himself to the truth. Olaf began to guess deeply at that truth, now that he could see Alan's face in the pitiless light of the day, and after a little the thing lay naked in his mind. The quest was not a matter of duty, nor was it inspired by the captain of the gnome, as alan had given him reason to believe there was more than grimness in the other's face and a strange sort of sickness lay in his eyes a little later he observed the straining eagerness with which those eyes scanned the softly undulating surface of the sea at last he said if captain rifle was right the girl went overboard out there and he pointed "'Allen stood up. "'But she wouldn't be there now,' Olaf added. "'In his heart he believed she was straight down at the bottom. "'He turned his boat shoreward. "'Creeping out from the shadow of the mountains "'was the white sand of the beach three or four miles away. "'A quarter of an hour later a spiral of smoke detached itself from the rocks "'and timber that came down close to the sea. Uh, "'That's McCormick's,' he said. Alan made no answer. Through Olaf's binoculars he picked out the Scotchman's cabin. It was Sandy McCormick, Olaf had assured him, who knew every eddy and drift in fifty miles of coast, and with his eyes shut could find Mary Standish if she came ashore. And it was Sandy who came down to greet them when Erikson dropped his anchor in shallow water. They leaped out thigh-deep and waded to the beach, and in the door of the cabin beyond, Alan saw a woman, looking down at them wonderingly. Sandy himself was young and ruddy-faced, more like a boy than a man. They shook hands. Then Alan told of the tragedy aboard the Nome, and what his mission was. He made a great effort to speak calmly, and believed that he succeeded. Certainly there was no break of emotion in his cold, even voice, and at the same time no possibility of evading its deadly earnestness. McCormick, whose means of livelihood were frequently more unsubstantial than real, listened to the offer of pecuniary reward for his services with something like shock. Fifty dollars a day for his time, and— an additional five thousand dollars if he found the girl's body. To Alan the sums meant nothing. He was not measuring dollars, and if he had said ten thousand or twenty thousand, the detail of price would not have impressed him as important. He possessed as much money as that in the gnome banks, and a little more, and had the thing been practicable, he would as willingly have offered his reindeer herds, could they have guaranteed him the possession of what he sought. In Olaf's face, McCormick caught a look which explained the situation a little. Alan Holt was not mad. He was as any other man might be who had lost the most precious thing in the world. And unconsciously, as he pledged his services in acceptance of the offer, he glanced in the direction of the little woman standing in the doorway of the cabin. Alan met her. She was a quiet, sweet-looking girl-woman. She smiled gravely at Olaf, gave her hand to Alan, and her blue eyes dilated when she heard what had happened aboard the gnome. Alan left the three together, and returned to the beach, while between the loading and the lightning of his pipe the Swede told what he had guessed— that this girl whose body would never be washed ashore was the beginning and the end of the world to Alan Holt. For many miles they searched the beach that day, while Sandy McCormick skirmished among the islands south and eastward in a light shore launch. He was in a way a Paul Revere, spreading intelligence, and with Scotch-canniness made a good bargain for himself. In a dozen cabins he left details of the drowning, and offered a reward of five hundred dollars for the finding of the body, so that twenty men and boys and half as many women were seeking before nightfall. And remember, Sandy told each of them, the chances are she'll wash ashore sometime between tomorrow and three days later, if she comes ashore at all. In the dusk of that first day Alan found himself ten miles up the coast. He was alone, for Olaf Erksson had gone in the opposite direction. It was a different Alan who watched the setting sun dipping into the western sea, with the golden slopes of the mountain reflecting its glory behind him. It was as if he had passed through a great sickness, and up from the earth of his own beloved land had crept slowly into his body and soul a new understanding of life. There was despair in his face— but it was a gentler thing now. The harsh lines of an obstinate will were gone from about his mouth. His eyes no longer concealed their grief, and there was something in his attitude of a man chastened by a consuming fire. He retraced his steps through deepening twilight, and with each mile of his questing return there grew in him that something which had come to him out of death. AND WHICH HE KNEW WOULD NEVER LEAVE HIM. AND WITH THIS CHANGE THE DRONING SOFTNESS OF THE NIGHT ITSELF SEEMED TO WHISPER THAT THE SEA WOULD NOT GIVE UP ITS STEAD. OLAF AND SANDY MCCORMICK AND SANDY'S WIFE WERE IN THE CABIN WHEN HE RETURNED AT MIDNIGHT. HE WAS EXHAUSTED. SEVEN MONTHS IN THE STATES HAD SOFTENED HIM, HE EXPLAINED. He did not inquire how successful the others had been. He knew. The woman's eyes told him, the almost mothering eagerness in them, when he came through the door. She had coffee and food ready for him, and he forced himself to eat. Sandy gave a report of what he had done, and Olaf smoked his pipe and tried to speak cheerfully of the splendid weather that was coming tomorrow. Not one of them spoke of Mary Standish. Alan felt the strain they were under, and knew his presence was the cause of it. So he lighted his own pipe after eating, and talked to Ellen McCormick about the splendor of the mountain's back of Iac River, and how fortunate she was to have her home in this little corner of Paradise. He caught a flash of something unspoken in her eyes— It was a lonely place for a woman, alone, without children, and he spoke about children to Sandy, smiling. They should have children, a lot of them. Sandy blushed, and Olaf let out a boom of laughter, but the woman's face was unflushed and serious. Only her eyes betrayed her, something wistful and appealing in them as he looked at Sandy. "Eh, "'We're building a new cabin,' he said." "'And there's two rooms in it specially for kids.' "'There was pride in his voice as he made pretense to light a pipe that was already lighted, "'and pride in the look he gave his young wife. "'A moment later Ellen McCormick deftly covered with her apron "'something which lay on a little table near the door through which Alan had to pass "'to enter his sleeping room. "'Olaf's eyes twinkled, but Alan did not see.' Only he knew there should be children here, where there was surely love, if it did not occur to him as being strange that he, Alan Holt, should think of such a matter at all. The next morning the search was resumed. Sandy drew a crude map of certain hidden places up the east coast, where drifts and cross-currents tossed the floesome of the sea, and Alan set out for these shores with Olaf at the wheel of the Norden. It was sunset when they returned, and in the calm of a wonderful evening, with a comforting peace of the mountains smiling down at them, Olaf believed the time had come to speak what was in his mind. He spoke first of the weird tricks of the Alaskan waters, and of strange forces deep down under the surface which he had never had explained to him, and how he had lost a cask once upon a time and a week later had run upon it well upon its way to Japan. He emphasized the hide-and-seek playfulness of the undertows and the treachery of them. Then he came bluntly to the point of the matter. It would be better if Mary Standish never did come ashore. It would be days, probably weeks, if it ever happened at all, and there would be nothing about her for Alan to recognize. "'better a peaceful resting-place at the bottom of the sea—that was what he called it—a peaceful resting-place, and, in his earnestness to soothe another's grief, he blundered still more deeply into the horror of it all, describing certain details of what flesh and bone could and could not stand, until Alan felt like clubbing him beyond the power of speech. He was glad when he saw the McCormick cabin.' Sandy was waiting for them when they waded ashore. Something unusual was in his face, Alan thought, and for a moment his heart waited in suspense. But the Scotchman shook his head negatively and went close to Olaf Erikson. Alan did not see the look that passed between them. He went to the cabin, and Ellen McCormick put a hand on his arm when he entered. It was an unusual thing for her to do. And there was a glow in her eyes, which had not been there last night, and a flush in her cheeks, and a new strange note in her voice when she spoke to him. It was almost exultation, something she was trying to keep back. "'You—you didn't find her?' she asked. "'No.' His voice was tired and a little old. "'Do you think I shall ever find her?' "'Not as you have expected,' she answered quietly. "'She will never come like that. "'She seemed to be making an effort. "'You—you would give a great deal to have her back, Mr. Holt.' "'Her question was childish in its absurdity, "'and she was like a child looking at him, as she did in this moment. "'He forced a smile to his lips and nodded. "'Of course—' EVERYTHING I POSSESS. YOU... YOU LOVED HER? Her voice trembled. It was odd she should ask these questions. But the probing did not sting him. It was not a woman's curiosity that inspired them, and the comforting softness in her voice did him good. He had not realized before how much he wanted to answer that question not only for himself, but for someone else, aloud. Yes, I did. The confession almost startled him. It seemed an amazing confidence to be making under any circumstances, and especially upon such brief acquaintance. But he said no more, though in Ellen McCormick's face and eyes was a tremulous expectancy.' He stepped into the little room which had been his sleeping-place, and returned with his dunnage sack. Out of this he took the bag in which were Mary Standish's belongings, and gave it to Sandy's wife. It was a matter of business now, and he tried to speak in a businesslike way. Her things are inside. I got them in her cabin. If you find her after I am gone, you will need them. You understand, of course. And if you don't find her, keep them for me. I shall return some day. It seemed hard for him to give his simple instructions. He went on. I don't think I shall stay any longer. But I will leave a certified check at Cordova, and it will be turned over to your husband when she is found. And if you do find her, you will look after her yourself won't you mrs mccormick ellen mccormick choked a little as she answered him promising him to do what he asked he would always remember her as a sympathetic little thing and half an hour later after he had explained everything to sandy he wished her happiness when he took her hand in saying good-bye her hand was trembling He wondered at it, and said something to Sandys about the priceless value of happiness such as his as they went down to the beach. The velvety darkness of the sky was a throbe with the heartbeat of stars when the northern shimmering trail led once more out to sea. Alan looked up at them, and his mind groped strangely in the infinity that lay above him. He had never measured it before. Life had been too full. But now it seemed so vast, and his range in the tundras so far away, that a great loneliness seized upon him as he turned his eyes to look back at the dimly white shoreline dissolving swiftly in the gloom that lay beneath the mountains. End of chapter 10 Of the Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander